Welcome back to episode four of the PBC podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Ryan. And today we have a load to get through. We certainly do, Sam. We have Antonisha, a minister for defences, Michal Martin. He sat down with yourself and Ronan to discuss anywhere from the importance of history to dream dinner guest Robert De Niro. Stay tuned for that massive interview we've coming. It was a brilliant chat, Brian. But before that, we have a brilliant discussion with some of our very own homegrown and published poets in this year's unfinished book of poetry from the TY Poetry module, Ian and Ronan, to discuss their experience. Now, Sam, we saw recently the public demise of R&B legend on one of the most infamous stages in the world. Me and Connor sat down to discuss the Frank Ocean Coachella fiasco. But before that, we have to listen out to our very own resident history buff, Rory, on his experience at the National Museum of Ireland, from swinging bronze swords to bog butter and everything in between. Also coming up on the show, Sam, Ian and Keane broke down the great and the not-so-great book-to-film adaptations. And don't forget our big interview, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Taunishta, and Minister for Defence, and last but not least, former prize teacher, Michal Martin. Now, Sam, during the weekend, I was bored, right? And what I was doing was, there's <laughs> no other way to put it, I was bored. And I was looking at the countries where we've listeners in uh, to the PBC podcast. Now, oh, really? Sure, surely it's not too many now. It's what, America, Britain? Well, we, we do have the big hitters from America and Britain, Sam. But would you believe we have listeners from the likes of Japan, Ghana, India, and Peru? <laughs> No, I would not, to be honest, Brian, I would not. No, I was shocked as well, Sam. So, And those, Sam, are just a few of the 46 countries we have reached on the map. So we just like to take this moment from myself and Sam and all members of the PVC podcast to thank all those countries for tuning in. Definitely. And now to kickstart the show, Sam sat down with our very own Prez podcast poets, Ian and Ronan, to discuss what they've been up to. Over the last few months, 10 transition year students here in Prez have been undertaking the poetry workshops with Cork-based poet Paul Casey, and we're happy today to be joined by two of those local poets, Ian Crowley and Ronan McCarthy. So lads, I guess just to start, you can kind of introduce me to your experience of the workshops. Uh, yeah, so as you said, Sam, we uh, we started around uh, Christmas time with um, uh, well, just leading up to Christmas uh, with um, weekly uh, workshops. They went over the course of um, our PE time every Wednesday. The main stuff we were doing, uh, we were mainly uh, looking at poets and um, and like uh, famous poems and different techniques that famous poets had used, and kind of trying to experiment with applying uh, applying their own those techniques ourselves to our own poems in order to kind of improve our poetic ability I suppose you could say yeah that was essentially it. and you know we learned a lot f- through it you know like there was d- different concepts you know I'd never even heard of like a ekphrasis was one and it's essentially making a poem based off a picture you know never heard of that one before yeah it, it must have been a very new experience I suppose because in English in the study of English there's a lot of reading and analyzing poems but I suppose the element of taking different techniques and writing your own poems that was a very new experience I suppose was it yeah like I mean it was it was fun to sort of experiment and to sort of freeing a bit as well you know being able to maybe articulate thoughts or so you know like ideas that you have within yourself and put them down on paper maybe to just better understand maybe issues in your life or you know things like that yeah I mean and well as like the fact that it was going over so many weeks you know we could really see like 
own improvement as we got kind of, I suppose, like at the start, you know, it was, it was something most of us were all kind of fairly new to, like kind of writing poetry of our own. Um, but then like, you know, as we experiment more with different techniques and stuff, we kind of, I suppose, grew our ability a bit and it was nice to see like ourselves, like and each other improving over the course of the module. Yeah, so it must have been a very rewarding experience, I suppose, with that, like really seeing a growth in your own ability. But our local poet, Paul Casey, he he held the workshops. And what was your interaction with him like? It's very good. He's yeah. he's very nice and very um helpful, you know. And he he wouldn't like put you down or say you know your poem's bad or anything, you know. Like he he just help you, um, maybe um write it better or use use technique better, or make it make it sound better yeah yeah well you said like it's he was very kind of mentoring and he was always kind of giving us i suppose um constructive criticism and showing how like places where we could improve like rather than just saying like you know oh that poem is terrible like you know he, he looked at like kind of the potential i suppose in our poems and how we could improve moving forward as well of course yeah and um i know at the end of the workshop you um you were all included in the unfinished book of poetry for 2023 um which it's a, it's a brilliant achievement, and I suppose it's another new experience to be a published writer, I suppose, Ian, isn't it? Yeah, it's great to put on the CV. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I suppose, Ian, you can just run us through maybe the, the lads who are published in the book from Prez. Yeah, so it's um, Andrew Malm, Hugh McGinn, Jack Bugler, Leo Porion, Ronan McCarthy, Dara McStay, myself, Kieran Barry, McDara Tobin, and Robert Barry, they're the 10 lads uh, who are published. Brilliant. And um, Ronan, you're going to read us one of your poems, are you? Yeah, that's right. This is the poem I read uh, on the launch day of the uh, publishing of the Unfinished Book of Poetry. It's called One Day. One Day. Somewhere a child is crying, wailing on the floor. One day they will stop and never again be so forlorn. One day we will do away with all our anger and cruelty. Love for all will prevail Kindness to all will be a duty. One day there shall be an end to conflict and wars. All people will unite and throw down their swords. One day all poverty will end. One day there will be no homeless, no orphans, no victims to defend. One day all sickness will be cured. All will be well. The very last patient saved by the bell. One day the dead shall rise from their graves and hug their old friends, filled with life's grace. One day there'll be no fear, and all the pain will disappear. One day I'll see you again. One day everything's going to be okay. One day. Thank you so much, Ronan. And just to mention another fantastic reward for your endeavours is that a number of our poets here in Prez will have some of their work published for the public to see in Fitzroy's Park and Jerry O'Sullivan Park and Churchfield and another few parks around the city as well so well done lads and um, Ian you're going to finish us off with one of your poems from the book aren't you? Uh, yep so Oil by Ian Crowley Pitch black the darkness surrounds me suddenly the earth starts to shake I can feel my whole body being squeezed like dust under a vacuum I'm sucked up up through pipes and forced into barrels I'm not used to the sun its rays cut me into colours. Apparently I'm useful now. I'm glad to be important. It wasn't like that for millennia. I am now I'm high in the air. Without me, nothing would get done. People spent a lot of money to entice me, push me out of my shell. Now they're saying I'm dangerous, that my very use is reckless. 
So, a great chat. Thanks so much for joining me, lads. And now, Brian, you're going to take me away to the deserts and the main stage of Coachella for the fiasco regarding our friend Frank Ocean. I am, of course, Sam. The legendary R&B artist Frank Ocean headlined Coachella last week. Brian, we're here to talk about it. We are, Connor. It was his first concert back in six years, and I must say it was an absolutely abysmal display. He came onto the stage an hour late. There was an hour's delay to his stage, and I'd say we could say the set wasn't what people were expecting. No, definitely not. Um, It was more interesting than anything, I thought, how... He gave the DJ a 15-minute set in the middle of it. Um, you know, he kind of did remixes of most of his songs as well. It was strange to see, really. Yeah, and just to give the listeners context to this, Frank was headlining Coachella at the end of the night, and fans had queued up from 7am, missing a whole day of the festival, just to be in the chance to see this man perform live. So there was a lot of hype surrounding in the concert. Frank came onto the stage, and he didn't really... St- sing any of his popular songs Connor he kind of came on and he he danced about for what looked like 45-50 minutes just playing his songs in the background it was almost like a listening party yeah it didn't seem like a headlining Coachella artist he didn't really look like he knew what he was doing it looked like he didn't really want to be there no I know there was rumours going around that there was troubles backstage and yeah for me it kind of looked like he was booked to do the show a long time ago and obviously due to COVID um, it didn't happen it kind of felt to me that he was just there to uphold his end of a contract and he spoke uh, halfway through the show uh, about his recently deceased brother which seemed to be a big influence for him performing at Coachella watching bass tremor with my brother and and Travis I don't know if Travis Taco is here but we were just dancing in that tent uh, to their music and um I know you've been so excited to be here with all of us, and I want to say thank you for the support and the ears and the love over all this time. Um, I'm get back to these songs. He said that these last couple of years, my life changed so much. Ocean said after the song ended, before speaking of his brother Ryan, who died in a car accident in 2020 at the age of just 18. My brother and I, we come, came to this festival a lot. I feel like I was dragged here so much of the time. He continued saying he hated Coachella, but loved the dancing with his brother. I know he would have been so excited to be here with all of us, and I just wanted to say thank you for the support and the ears and the love for all this time. So, judging by that statement, Connor, he even says himself he didn't enjoy coming to Coachella, so I don't understand why he would put himself in the position to headline the festival. Yeah, no, 100%. He doesn't enjoy being at the festival, then why would he enjoy headlining it? Um, You can tell this whole thing really was for his brother. He played um, his brother's favourite remix of White Ferrari as well, which is one of his bigger songs. Um, But yeah, I mean, of course, it must have changed his life drastically in, I think, 2021, when his brother died. Um, People think that that's why a new album has been delayed for, what's the last seven years now? Yeah. yeah yeah I definitely think he wasn't in the right headspace to be performing there like he was told at the end of the night that only after 90 minutes of performance I don't know if you could even call it a performance really that he was going over curfew and that he was to leave the stage and that even disappointed fans even more if after they're paying thousands of dollars to go see him the show being 
under par by a lot and not even being over 90 minutes like yeah of course and as you said people queuing from 7 in the morning to vote in Frank Ocean funds they didn't get to see anybody else that day um that was the only act they saw and I mean for it to be that you'd have to be highly disappointing extremely disappointed I'd just like to talk to you Connor about the backstage kind of shenanigans that went on obviously there was a story of the ice rink would you like to tell us about that more yeah it was very confusing it came out I think the next day that um, there was an ice rink meant to be on stage for the performers but at some point in the day, Frank decided that um, the ice rink was to be no more. So apparently 10 minutes before the show, the ice rink was fully melted. So, I mean, you can tell it's a bit of a shambles, really. Yeah, from no my understanding here, reading the Rolling Stone article that they published about it, the production team were fuming with that. And I think there was a lot of bad blood left with Frank Ocean in the Coachella like company, as you can see, because he's pulled out from the second week of headlining. Being replaced by Blink-182... Um, obviously that's not what people who've come to Coachella have paid for especially Frank Ocean fans and Frank Ocean does have that pull where people will pay money just to go to see him at a festival and now maybe the people wouldn't want to pay that money for Blink-182 I think Coachella could have some problems there maybe but Connor, I just want to ask you what do you think the long term fallout will be from this big event like especially with Frank Ocean saying there is an album on the way there isn't an album on the way he's not sure live performances yeah, I mean, he is really, I think, one of music's biggest what-if stories because the way he treats his fans, he's lucky he's so talented that he has such a huge fan base because he does not treat his fans well. And I think it's showing with this performance. I mean, it looked like he didn't care. So going forward, what festival is going to want to take him to headline? Because he company cl- is going to want to do a world tour with Exactly. Him, like- he clearly isn't made for performing. He's amazing talented artist but maybe on the stage isn't where he's supposed to be no and I think he should definitely consider that for future really Connor, it's been great sitting down having this conversation with you about this concert that has broke a lot of fans hearts almost and definitely tarnished Frank's reputation any finishing words? Yeah, I mean, it all really makes me wonder, has artists being, you know, kind of mysterious just gone too far, really? With Frank Ocean not releasing an album in seven years, not performing in six. I mean, I know with the pandemic it's been difficult, but seven years is an awful long time. Yeah, I think definitely, Connor, with kind of the way the the whole music industry is now in the modern day, it's all you can see with social media, it's all quick releases and albums are becoming less of a maybe less of a more prominent thing in the industry and it's all about quick singles released and getting charts and getting plays and stuff like that you know and kind of virality of songs really so I don't know if it'll work for Frank in the future obviously the man is one of the most talented artists out there at the moment but maybe it's something he needs to look at I could see Frank Ocean walking away into the sunset and never coming back again like that's the whole thing about the man you don't know what comes next and yeah, I mean, definitely, at this point in his career, he honestly could do that, and why not? But, I mean, it's anyone's guess, really. So, thanks for coming and having the chat, Brian. No um, worries, Connor. So, I really enjoyed that discussion, Sam. Me and Connor, obviously big fans of Frank Ocean, and it'll be interesting to see what comes next now from this whole thing. Definitely. Now, next up on the show... Rory went back in time during his work experience in the Natural History Museum of Ireland. He now regales us with tales of Vikings and Celts.
Well, later in the episode, we will be joined for our big interview with Tonishta, Minister for Defence and, of course, Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin, to talk about the importance of history and the study of history in schools. But keeping on the theme of history, we have our very own TUI podcaster, Rory O'Donica, to tell us of his recent work experience. Off to you, Rory. My time in the National Museum of Ireland on Kildare Street was amazing. As a diehard history buff, I was in utter heaven. I got to see so much that people who visit it just never get to see. On our first day, we toured the museum. We were brought out around, of course, to see all the stuff above ground in the museum. Standard stuff, the uh, chalice, the bog bodies. Funny story, I um, laid down next to a bog body who only had a torso because they told us that um, his height, and that was my exact same height. And as a joke, they asked me to lie down, and so I did. And But after our tour, we were brought down into what they call, the archaeologists who were there, the crypts, which is the underground storage unit um, that they keep all of their finds in that isn't shown above ground. They showed us what was in the drawers. There was a Viking hair comb, there were 4,000-year-old bronze swords, and bog butter, funnily enough. Now, bog butter was um, this kind of butter-cheese kind of mix that was offered up by ancient people as a kind of offering to the gods. Very interesting. And the most famous piece of it is upstairs next to the bog bodies. Um, and funnily enough, that specific one had Oscar Wilde's father take a bite of it, which is a very strange story I never thought I'd hear. There were... Boxes and boxes stuffed with full of old Stone Age debris and any rock seemingly touched or even altered by human hand. It was explained to us that the National Museum was legally obligated to take all findings brought to them, no matter how many they already had, no matter how common the rock, because they hold in trust and keep safe for all of Ireland the historical artefacts. This means that anyone, as long as they book in first and have a good reason, can go down into the crypts and see historical artefacts, as these artefacts are being preserved for said people of Ireland, of course. Uh, We even came across a person who utilised this, uh, an artist who was painting old rock carvings that uh, that was brought down to the crypts. When we came down into the crypts, we found a curator taking photos of ancient bronze knives and swords. Uh, we had a conversation regarding these weapons, and, the, and it kind of segued into the Iron Age, and I kind of made the statement that the Bronze Age in Ireland was kind of brought to an end when the Celts arrived with the Iron Swords. And the curator actually said he disagreed with two of my statements there, Celts and arrived, because much to my shock, the Irish were never Celts, and um, nor was is there any evidence for any mass migration of Celts to Ireland. And the common perception that the Irish people were, were Celts was started in the Gaelic revival, when people were trying to forge their new identity away from Britain. But it seems that we only had a Celtic-influenced culture by uh, the people across us influenced by the people across the sea. This was a shock to me, 
but a, but a welcome one because it had been a while since anything regarding history had ever shocked me the way this did. Uh, during our tour of the uh, crypts, our guide opened a cupboard and um, showed us a mummy's hand that they had. It was amazed how well it was preserved. When I raised the moral cram that would this person want their hand in the box so far away from home, our guide said, maybe not, but if the Egyptians ever ask for it back, it will most likely be returned to them right away. But my favourite thing that happened in the crypts was I got to hold an ancient bronze sword. And the most amazing thing, it was still sharp. After 4,000 years of battering, sitting in bogs and rivers, and finally making its way to, into a box in the National Museum, its blade was still sharp. Iron may be tougher and easier to find, but nothing holds an edge like bronze. The next day, we labelled some chert, which is a rock similar to flint. Uh, we labelled whether it was a blade or just debris, and this is important work uh, because it's not all uh, just glamour finding really cool stuff. You have to label even the tiniest, commonest thing when you're an archaeologist. But after that, for another two days or so, we were set to work scrubbing um, old animal bones that were found in where else but a dig on Grand Parade, of all places, way back in 1984. Uh, to clean bones like that, you can't actually use, like, a steel scrubber and fairy liquid. You have to be very careful. You have to use a soft bristle toothbrush and lukewarm water to make sure the bones aren't damaged or changed. On the Thursday of that week, we um, were brought to visit Collins's barracks, and we toured it. Uh, we didn't get to see anything you wouldn't get from an ordinary tour of Collins, but it was it was amazing nonetheless, seeing uh, all the Easter Rising artefacts, the more modern history that isn't shown in the National Museum on Kildare Street. But on Friday, we helped to actually give a tour of the museum helped to explain the gold that we saw from our prior knowledge of the day one tour we were given, uh, how the gold that's in the National Museum, you're given a finder's fee to stop people from just melting it down and selling it. And uh, we also were helped show them, the tourists, to the Erda Chalice. And after the tour, we, um, we helped answer questions to the American tourists uh, about Irish culture and the significance of in the engravings on the Erda Chalice. Or we also explained to them Irish uh, culture surrounding fairy mounds, how people reroute motorways and roads to avoid destroying fairy mounds and such. That was an amazing experience. So, Rory, your, your passion for history is incredibly evident from your piece but where, you. where does where does that passion spring from is it uh, was it always encouraged by your parents or was it something you kind of discovered by yourself i think it was uh, encouraged as well as f found by myself because uh when i was younger i read all the horrible histories books and that made me want to learn more and more about history which led to my uh, grandfather bringing me to most of uh the museums and historical uh, landmarks in, uh, in Dublin each time we visited. It was amazing. 
yeah, uh, both of those things combined helped encourage my love of history. Brilliant, yeah. And just with regards to the work experience itself, it's uh, it's an in- incredible place to be able to do it in the National History Museum. And how how did you actually manage to, to get in for your work experience? Well, it's an interesting story. I was on holidays and it was one of a group packages. And one of the friends we made there was a curator in the Ulster Museum. And she recommended to me that I apply for the National Museum. And when I did, I got in. It was, it was, it was amazing. Be Very good. luck, to be perfectly honest. Great stuff, Rory. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sam. So, a great chat there with, with Rory. He's, a, he's certainly a passionate character. From words on a page to multi-million dollar productions, Ian and Kean tell us of the good, the bad and the ugly of book-to-film adaptations. Hi, I'm Kieran O'Malley and today I am here with Ian Crowley and today we'll, we will be talking about uh, movie adaptations of books. So, Ian... What do you think about the statement, the book is always better? Do you think it's true? I don't think it's true. I think that movies can elevate the books, you know, but I think the source material has to be at least good or or decent. But I don't think it's true that the book is always better, you know? What do you think? Uh, Well, I think uh, I agree with you on that. Um, One of my favorite movies of all time, actually, Fight Club. Uh, Not a lot of people realize it's based on a book. Um, but I think the book is very good, and I think it's the movie is a very different story, um, but it touches on a lot of the same themes, which I think is essential for an adaptation uh, to succeed. Yeah, like even the author of the book, Chuck Palahniuk, uh, admits that he thinks that the movie is better. And again, it's just down to keeping the same, keeping the author's idea intact, uh, keeping the same themes, uh, and keeping the feel of the book. Uh, I think the there's a lot that had to be changed for the movie, uh, like the uh, recipes for explosive sub- substances uh, had to be cut out. But it was a great adaptation, I think. Uh, do you have any you like? Well, I really like um, the movie Blade Runner, and I read the book um, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" Um, but it's not. It's very different. Um, it's more inspired by than based on. You know, um, like Blade Runner is sort of set in, like, a futuristic city, you know, it's overpopulated, you know, but the actual book itself, it's more like Earth is, like, a desolate wasteland almost, and there's just the last dregs of humanity. Everyone else is up in Mars, you know? But it, it's diff- It's interesting because um, it sort of has different takes on the theme of sort of empathy. You know, the book is all about empathy, you know? But um, the film is more sort of kinder to the sort of replicant sort of robots you know then the book is the book's more sort of portrays them as nastier or completely in sort of inhumane almost yeah um, touching on maybe the maybe the movie is more focused on discrimination even would you say? yeah yeah the movie's more sort of focused on you know how em- empathy can be in sort of everyone or you know we we need to be sort of careful of that sort of thing or careful of them that sort of every live, living being being deserves respect and to live live life to the fullest, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, a controversial adaptation, uh, which I love actually, is Hell's Moving Castle. Oh yeah. 
uh, Diane Wynne Jones, the author of the original book, um, it's very different to the movie. Um, a lot in the book, Howell and Sophie are much more portrayed as like a kind of bickering old couple, uh, whereas the movie has more magical, more almost positive outlook on life. Uh, it just feels very happy. It just feels uh, like you really you really want the characters to succeed, whereas in the book you're not really rooting for the characters most of the time, um, given how annoying some of them can get. And I know that's not it's not the most loved uh, movie from Studio Ghibli, but I, I think it's one of my favourites, and I think that's a great example of uh, adaptation that doesn't really keep the theme of the book but it's still great. Obviously, the uh, Blade Runner touches on different themes, but you're saying it's more inspired by Is there anything you think is uh, almost similar, where it's very different to the book, but it's also great? I suppose the the, the movie, um, there's a, a sort of subplot in the book about sort of religion and sort of, um, sort of seeing empathy through a shared sort of traumatic event almost, and that's just completely absent in the, the film. But the film's sort of going for a different tone and more sort of neo neo noir sort of detective like story. So it it works it works on its own without that uh, subplot, you know. And I suppose that does raise like an interesting question: like, does the film have to be accurate to the source material? Like, what what do you think on that? Uh, well, I think uh, if if we're looking at uh, accuracy to the source material, um, Lord of the Rings, the second movie, second book, uh, Two Towers. The, the movie is very different from the book or I suppose in all three Lord of the Rings movies there's a lot that was cut out and a lot of descriptions of journeys a lot of uh, time where not, the plot isn't really advancing where it's just uh, Frodo buying a house or here's a description of a beautiful landscape and a lot of that is cut out obviously with the landscapes you can just show it in a single shot of a, a film but I, it's very different but again it keeps the same themes and it keeps the same characters and keeps the same overall story uh, while uh, Two Towers then changes a lot and I think Two Towers really uh, helps with the Osgiliath uh, storyline I, I think it really adds to the feel of the movie I think it it's a great addition yeah and like when it came to Lord of the Rings it was like seen as almost unfilmable like before the movies came out you know like how could you you know, summarize the books into this sort of thing, you know, and it's sort of like, like the recent Dune movie, you know, this guy, um, uh, Jodorowsky tried to make one, um, in like the seventies, you know, but it was like too long. It was going to be like 10 hours. So it was cut. And then David Lynch made one in the eighties and that was, uh, cut down significantly to the point where it barely made any sense, you know, but like the, the, the newer one did strike a balance, you know, without having it as a part one and part two, you know, like that was an example, like Lord of the Rings, of um, something that was thought to be unfilmable. You know. Yeah, I think a lot of things, even now, are still thought to be unfilmable. Uh, whereas I think technology is always evolving. Uh, so in in five to ten years, the things that we think are unfilmable uh, will become uh, will become great movies. I think uh, the Godfather, uh, you know, gr- one of the greatest movies of all time, uh, was an adaptation of a book that was at the time again seen seen as unfilmable because of how uh, violent and explicit the book is um, but if you if you're smart about it if you change uh, slight things 
with a great writer behind you, uh, I think any book can really be filmed, uh, especially as technology is advancing. Yeah, I suppose there's also the sort of element of, in books you have the sort of narration, like the internal monologue of the characters, you know, and, you know, you sort of have to, like, it might be different to transfer that into movies because um, you're dealing with a visual medium, you know, it's like you can't have narration as much or it just seems lazy, you know? Like, yeah. you have to portray it differently. Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest examples of this would be Percy Jackson. Uh, I love the Percy Jackson books, but uh, the two movies that were made are just shocking. They are horrendous. They, uh, they don't keep any of the same humour, really. Uh, they really fail to capture uh, the style of the original uh, books. And I think a lot of that is because the books are written in the first person. Um, so all of the things that are going through Percy's head you just don't see in the movies uh, I think like there's a Disney Plus series coming out soon um, but I think the they really went the wrong way around adapting that so hopefully the series does better uh, I think it can be adapted well uh, but we'll have to see how it goes now the The Shining is one that's oh, yeah. controversial uh, do you want to talk about that a bit? Um, yeah so I suppose the Shining is one of the most revered horror movies of all time, um, but Stephen King, the original author of the book, actually um, he had some contempt for the film because of how much it changed. Um, like the the novel, like the, the the endings are almost completely different, you know. Um, and so I suppose it's you know interesting, like when an author actually comments on the movie you know, and comments on how they feel their work was interpreted, you know, like Rodal hated. Um, Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory because of how it changed sort of the perspective to be more on focused on Willy Wonka or you know he he hated that so it's it's interesting when that happens yeah I guess it's all uh, down to how respectful you are of the author's ideas again what we were saying uh, like with Fight Club it's still touching on the kind of almost communist uh, nihilistic outlook um, of the book um but it's a great criticism of the nihilistic outlook and a great criticism of uh, consumerism and capitalism still um, without having a lot of the uh, unsavory acts uh, from the book. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think the movies can definitely be better. Uh, and when authors uh, try to claim that uh, books will always be better, I think they're just not... Uh, being truthful I feel like you can you can have amazing movies made out of amazing books and you can have terrible movies made out of amazing books and I think uh, that's all down to how the movie is made I don't think it's anything uh, to do with the media that it's made in and now the time that you've all been listening so patiently for we have our big interview with Antanasha and Minister for, for Defences Michal Martin. Sam and Ronan sat down with former press teacher Taoiseach and now Tanishta Michal Martin. Well Sam, we have a very special guest this week episode, don't we? We do indeed, Ronan. This episode of the PBC podcast, we're delighted to welcome former press teacher and of course Tanishta and Minister for Defence Michal Martin. Tanishta, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Delighted to be here. 
So, Tonisha, we'll get straight into it. Uh, we listened to your speech about the importance of history, and I think in our generation uh, of students, history is often something that's uh, disregarded. Do you feel that at secondary school level and in young people today, the importance of history is being forgotten? There's always a danger that it is being forgotten. Um, I'm passionate about history, and when I was Minister of Education in 1997 to 2000, it was interesting. I had just inherited a policy which was to take history out as a core subject in the junior cycle. I reversed that as, 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 as Minister for Education and I wrote a letter on the file saying this is never to happen again. So about 20 years later I'm leader of the opposition and lo and behold there's a new proposal to take history out of the junior cycle <laughs> as a core subject. Uh, and as I said earlier um, history is multidisciplinary. You learn so much else through history. Um, you learn economics, social history, you learn music, theatre, dance, Everything is in history and you learn how to read, write, analyse, have perspective. So I think history is, 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 must be a core subject and we need to know about our past because it informs the present and the future. Of course. And yeah, if I'm not wrong, you began your career as a history teacher, didn't you, Donister? I did. I, I thought in life that, was, that I was destined to be a history teacher. <laughs> I wanted to be a history teacher. And basically, I think I was lucky in Colossus Street where I attended, there was a brother, Cullum, who was a fantastic history teacher for the first three or four years. And he taught, He really provoked an interest in history in me and um, affirmed me a lot in terms of uh, the subject. And then I did it in Leaving Cert, did it in UCC and did the HDIP and became a history teacher as well as an Irish teacher. But predominantly history, uh, I did a master's in history, so it was my big subject. So was was history teacher kind of always, always the plan and yes. politics just kind of... Pulled you away? I never saw myself as a public representative, but I was always interested in current affairs oh, and in politics, but never saw myself as being a TD. I can recall I joined the party that I'm a member of, Fianna Fáil, in college. Uh, and I remember towards the end of, saying fourth year, some guy says to me, you, you'll probably be a TD at some stage. Uh, and I said, what? Uh, <laughs> it hadn't dawned on me. Um, and... Um, there was other factors. I think my father was popular. When I eventually went for local elections in, in 1985, the father had been a well-known boxer in Cork, uh, oh. bus driver uh, in, in the Turners Cross, Balfeyhan area, very popular. And uh, I think it was his popularity got me elected <laughs> first. But yeah, history teacher is what I thought I'd be. And my mother, if she had her way, I'd still be a history teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose just back to the importance of history, would you, would you go as far as maybe to say that kind of like current events and in, in current affairs that some issues can almost be predicted by the past, like issues like maybe the war in the Ukraine and things that they can be not foreshadowed, but almost a warning from the past can be taken. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's interesting in, in terms of, you. I mean, there's a great book by Tim Marshall, I think, Prisoners of Geography. And again, geography and history are, are so linked, of course. Um, and, and there's always been these strategic issues with Russia as it faces the West, irrespective of whether it is the, the Tsar mm. back in the 19th century, uh, the Bolsheviks in the 20th century, um, Stalin, so on. Uh, so the security, if you like, fears of, of, of Russia. Um, so history does teach us that as Russia broke up, the Soviet Union broke up, and I remember reading a great book on James Baker, who was the Secretary of State at the time of the US. Uh, his big concern was, what do we do with all the nuclear weapons in the Soviet of course, Union? Of course, yeah. If you remember, Ukraine gave them back. Mm. So to a certain extent, they were even then trying to learn the lessons of history, understanding the security architecture of the continent was important for Russia. But the problem is, I think, that that to a certain extent, Putin has the mindset of a 19th century leader. 
And the Germans will say that to you, and Angela Merkel would have said that to us as European leaders prior to this, that he's convinced that the worst thing that ever happened was the breakup of the Soviet Union. So he looks at it through the lens of an imperialist 19th century leader. Um, and many of the European leaders prior to the outbreak of war in Ukraine sort of went to Putin and said, look, okay, you have security concerns yeah. in respect of the exposure potentially of Russia to, 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 to the West and to NATO and so on. So what can we do to deal with those concerns and, of course. Yeah. and so on? So yes, you could predict some of this. And we, we, there is an understanding through history of the forces that have given rise to the Russian geopolitical position. Um, yeah. Would you say that your knowledge of history has helped you in your political career? Without question. Without question. I think it, um, on a very basic level, it helped me in terms of reading, writing, and analysis, and research, mm-hmm. and the importance of an evidence-based approach. Sometimes it, could be, um, sometimes it can be a hindrance because that, that evidence-based approach at times can dull you. In other mm-hmm. words, politics is about excitement and a bit of propaganda and spinning. And I'm not an angel. I can do a bit <laughs> of that myself. But sometimes that, I mean, even my young kids sometimes say, you're going too academic on some of these mm. matters. You need to be more populist. You need to go mm. for it. That's modern politics. Uh, and in a way, because you're in the, the mindset of sort of the historian or the person who's always trying to have an evidence-based approach, yeah. Yeah. it can dull your presentation. <laughs> but overall, I think it's been a great help. As a minister, you get a lot of briefs, a lot of documentation, and what history teaches you, you can cut through the, the waffle, you can cut through the, to the, you can get to the core of a brief very quickly. Like, what's the bottom line here? What, what are they saying here? And the other side of what I've learned from history, I think in terms of what I said earlier to, 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 to the history students, the great lesson, I think, from history that I've learned and tried to always always try and do is understand the situation from the other person's perspective. Like yesterday, I met the Serbian prime minister and, you know, there's varying perspectives on how Serbia is behaving. And even, even in the context of the Ukrainian war, yeah, it's an African country to Europe, It is, yeah, yeah. yet it hasn't joined the sanctions. And, yeah. But you've got to listen. Yeah, Listening is the greatest skill of all. Yes, because of course, sure, I suppose from the Serbian perspective, they're... They're so close to Russia in a geographical sense that it's a lot more complicated for them to condemn everything when it's their next door neighbor nearly. You, you have it in one and they're 100% dependent on gas and, and so on. Very, uh, but also they have a perspective on what happened to them historically as well and yeah. in terms of how sanctions affect them and so mm. on. So the, 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 the great lesson of history is you keep the channels open and you keep listening and you keep the, di- the dialogue going. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you met with the leader of uh, Serbia recently. Of all the different world leaders that you met, which one did you think made the most the biggest impression? Oh, um, President Obama, I've, I've met. Um, I enjoy Joe Biden. He's made an impression in terms of when I engage with Joe Biden. Like, and he's he said something in the Doyle about you know he he said he was coming to the end of his career at one level, and he said, "But I have wisdom now." Mm. Uh, and he he keeps it very simple, and he's a values based politician, and I find that very intriguing and interesting. And he he wears it on the sleeve almost. I think Obama, um, Mandela, I met briefly, and Becky, his successor in South Africa, um, and um, and then um, obviously Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, I uh, worked with when I was previously Foreign Minister, um, and. Um, and then closer to home, uh, I think uh, Jack Lynch was an interesting 
leader in terms of tone, uh, behavior and, and humility. And he was a very humble man. Um, and, um, so yeah, those, there's many, I mean, probably others I hadn't mentioned, but, uh, Macron is very interesting. So that, just back to Biden, President Biden was, what was kind of the, the lasting feeling would you feel from his visit? Cause it was a resounding success. Of course, they, he was so clearly happy to be in Ireland and everything in his, in his ancestral home country, but on kind of a more political view, was it? left with good feelings on all on all parties yeah i mean there's two levels to, to to president biden one is he genuinely is you know he loves the irishness and then the phrase that's the irish of it you know and i've met him on various occasions the cop 26 and so on like that and he invariably talk about his mother his grandparents and how, how they gave him values from an irish perspective yeah you know you often hear these phrases about joy this yeah joy, of course. keep, yeah, keep yeah. the faith no no yeah, spread yeah. the faith joy yeah. uh and um and, and all of that, and, and what the mother would say to him, you know, Joey, because he had a stuttering problem, he stammered yeah. as a child. So the yeah, mother would say to him, you, 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 you can do anything you want, Joey. You can be the best in the world. No one's better than you, but everybody's equal to you. Yeah. So he kind of yeah. those are values. At another level, he he has real steel, mm. and you underestimate him at your peril. And I think from an Irish perspective, the visit is very important in terms of he has our back. Yeah, mm. and he said that to us. In the context of Brexit, in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, his interventions at the time of Brexit when he became president to say, you know, don't mess around, he said to the UK government, with um, the Good Friday Agreement or the institutions. Uh, and the, that was followed up with people like Richie Neal, Nancy Pelosi, going to Britain, going to London, going to Brussels, saying, you know, there'll be no trade deal between the UK and the US if there's any mm. undermining of the Irish um, position. So that's the hardness of it. I had a very good meeting with him twice. They were virtual because I got COVID the second time. But on Ukraine, it was fascinating because he's very strong on foreign policy. Yeah. And he's a veteran of, of American foreign policy. But I think we're fortunate that we have his wisdom and experience in a dangerous world. Yeah. What do I mean by that? I mean, he's very conscious of the line he has to navigate in terms of su supporting the right of Ukraine to self-defend, but equally not allow a nuclear conflagration take place. And, and, and he's very conscious of that. And so we're, he has the skill sets and he has a team behind him that understand all of that. Um, and um, so I think that's, that, that's reassuring. Uh, so what would you say in your life is the best piece of advice that you've ever received that stayed with you? Some level, don't be selfish. <laughs> No, literally, I remember one individual came up to me one time and he, he wasn't saying I was, but he just said, look, as a lesson in life, just it's not all about yourself. Uh, it's about others. Um, and I think, you know, keep thinking of others. Uh, that is important. Um, and I think the best, other bit of best advice, and it's the advice I give is, is to listen. And that's like, I'm, I wasn't a great listener all my life, but I've become a better listener and, and I think that, that 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 that's a great skill mm. to have the patience to listen and to hear somebody out because we you know, we always tend to interrupt or get your own th you're thinking of your own thoughts you know of course. get them out but actually to develop the skill of listening and hearing not just literally what somebody is saying but actually what's behind it what's the emotion behind it and and I suppose Tanisha so that that's kind of advice that translates not only in politics and everything but it translates to, to everyone in life i suppose it to, to just everyday interactions with everybody it, it does and another aspect of politics which i didn't get to talk about at all is the constituency politics mm, you know um in ireland we were legislators but we're also 
we were almost was the, the, there's different uh, phrases have been put on by political scientists in the past but where people come to us about individual issues um, and people come to us who've been through trauma people come to us who are in, in a difficult situation it could be housing it could be social issues it could be health issues uh, and they need access to basic services um, and that, that's where the listening comes in uh, and the attempt to try and understand what people are going through. And, 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 but the listening piece of that is very important. Sometimes people come in very angry about what has happened to them in their lives. And um, one, one can get defensive in response to that, but you've got to try and avoid that and, and, and hear the person out. We're nearly, we're nearly out of time now, Thomas. Just so we said we'd, uh, we'd end on a, on, a, on a funny enough question, but... Um, it's it's almost a desert island style question, but it it's if you if you could choose four figures from from history for for a dinner party or uh, or maybe a Casey's, uh, where who would who would you be thinking of? I think uh, four big figures in history. I mean, uh, at a dinner party, um, for, on, on a completely acting side, I think Robert De Niro. <laughs> Um, I just love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have a meeting with him someday. Guest, you know I mean? Definitely, yeah. Um, Julie Crystal, Dr. Shivago, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great films. Um, Mandela, yeah, uh, Obama, uh, Michelle Obama, mm. uh, I think would be very interesting. Countess Markovic, all that period, Maud Gone, um, that, that whole literary movement of the um, late 19th, early 20th century yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. would be. I think fascinating people just to be around the dinner table with Yates and Definitely, Eddie Gregory, yeah. all, the, all, the, all these people. And, and, um, and that kind of I was sparked, that interest was sparked again recently when I went to the Abbey and you just mm. look at the incredible history of the Abbey. Of course. As yeah. part of the revolution mm. that happened in Ireland, the yeah, cultural. Yeah. It's, but what I was saying inside, like it's, we all think it's just political history and we, mm. you know, the big names are, okay, what happened, who fought, yeah, who and who was the big political leaders, De Valera, Collins. Yeah. But actually, there's actors, culture, Mm. Theatre, mm. drama. I mean, O'Casey's plays, for example, yeah. were uh, very uh, brave plays for the time because he went against the herd in respect of the use of political violence and so on and how, what did it mean for the working class anyway kind of thing. Um, and so those people, I think, would make very interesting. I think Mandela, to me, and I regret that I didn't get a chance to kind of meet him mm. in great mm. deal because there was a man who was decades in prison of course. Yeah. And what was extraordinary when he came, I remember the day when I was watching on television, it was very, very emotional when he, when he walked out of, mm. of, of the prison. Um, but his, his message of reconciliation and absence of bitterness was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and what a lesson to the world, um, you know, that he bore no, he genuinely, you could see it in him. He was a man of peace. Yeah. Uh, despite all that was done to him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he genuinely bore no ill feelings to yeah. people who imprisoned him for decades. It was exactly. Yeah. Yeah. An extraordinary story. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, Tanisha. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining us, taking our questions. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, thank thanks. you so much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Sam, what an episode we had there. Another big one, lots of great contributions from our regular contributors, some special guests, and of course, big thanks to all our loyal listeners. We really appreciate it. Big thanks to ourselves as well, Sam. Of course, yeah, of I course, mean, you know. We carried How would the show go on? Butchered, like, yeah. Now, from one big guest to another, if you go on to Instagram and search pbc.podcast, you will get a very sneak peek at perhaps a big guest we have coming up on the show soon. So if I were you, I'd get on to that. 
Definitely, Brian. Sam, it's been a great show. It has indeed. Thanks so much for listening. I've been Brian. I've been Sam. Bye for now.